Hey everybody, this is Chris from the Running Rogue Podcast. We are recording episode 7 today. I'm here with Steve, as always, and we're going to be starting another series. We just talked in episode 6 about our mental training series that we teed up that we'll be following through on over the next several months. And we're going to start another one that'll actually talk about the physical elements of training. So today we're going to kick off a podcast series Following up on our episode one, where we talked about the basic tenets of training, we're going to go through each of those tenets in turn and talk about some of the details and the practical application of those tenets. So today we're going to be starting with the first first in this series where we cover off on our tenet about miles matter, why mileage is important in your training. So we're going to dig into that today. Before we go into that, though, we're going to dive into a myriad of current events as it relates to the running scene. We've had some some things happening over the last several weeks that we wanted to talk about and riff on. So we've got three or four things that we're going to cover here and then we'll dive into our first in the series. So the first thing we wanted to cover would happen just this past weekend. There was a new indoor world record for the DMR set by a trio of New Balance girls, uh, Brenda Martinez, Jenny Simpson, Emma Coburn, and then the up-and-coming Sydney McLaughlin, who's the the young high school uh, four four hundred hurdler from from go, well going to Kentucky. So supposedly going to Kentucky. We'll wait to see what happens on signing pro. day. She may turn pro. Yeah, she left the she left the the window open there. So clearly, New Balance is wooing her because she was decked out. And I also noticed on her kit she had her own logo already that yeah. said Sid. Yeah. <laughs> so she's she's working the commercial angle. But anyway, those ladies at the New Balance Indoor Games ran a 10.40 for the DMR and set the new world record for that, for indoor at least. Tell the, the audience first, Steve, about what's a DMR? So the DMR is a distance medley relay. Um and it's actually a pretty exciting race to watch. It's probably one of the most exciting races to watch on the track for um, in the distance world because you've got four different people running four different distances ranging from basically one lap or 400 meters all the way to four laps. Each, ra- each person in the race um, runs a different distance. So in the case of the DMR, the first leg is a 1,200-meter leg, which would be three laps around a track. That was run by Emma Coburn, the Olympic steeplechaser who medaled at the uh, most recent Olympic Games. Um, then the 400-meter leg is run. It's crazy. That handoff goes from those, – those runners go from what looks like a, a pretty hard – effort to handing a baton to a 400 meter runner who looks like they got shot out of a cannon and they're all together without a stagger and it's awesome it's mayhem and 400 meter runners only in the four by four do they ever get to do that but with the dmr it's like they're even more bunched together it creates a bunch of chaos um then they run a 400 meter leg and then they hand off to an 800 meter leg so the pace slows down a little bit but 800 meter runners are usually go out pretty fast so it stays with a great rhythm you know the 800 meters two laps around the track and then they hand finally to the mile or basically the 1600 which is the metric mile um four laps around the track if we're talking about a 400 meter oval of course they were running indoors on a 200 meter oval so you double the distance double double the number of laps that they were running which makes it even more crazy 
It does. It's a, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with, uh, you know, I coached at the university of Texas for eight years and we, we were, we were amazing at the four by four. And so having the opportunity to sit around a bunch of 400 meter runners and discuss with them the relay of the DMR at first, when I first got there, they, they poo pooed it. Nobody wanted to be on the four by on the DMR, none of the 400 runners. By the time I left our best 400 meter runners wanted to be on the DMR. Number one, we got better in the distances, but number two, they realized how much fun it really was and they got to they got to see the sort of different the way that the race sort of plays out and at different paces and different efforts and you know they used to say when it got to the mile that all of a sudden the race would slow down and everybody would go get popcorn well what happens then is if there's a giant gap and somebody up front decides to shut it down and run easy let's say on the girls side they decide they want to run a five minute mile which for women is pretty slow that means that the girls who can run 440 catch back up. So now you've got this sort of an accordion of the race where it, where it expands and contracts and expands and contracts. And it makes for an amazingly fun race to watch. Um, also, I've got to run in a number of DMRs. They're a heck of a lot of fun to race into. They're not run that often, though, especially indoors. So this is sort of what you might call a weak world record of sorts. They're rarely run indoors at the world level. They're almost exclusively run indoors at the collegiate level. So at the collegiate level, you see them in almost every meet, or at least in three to four of the best best quality meets you have in every track meet. And then when we get to the outdoors, the DMR is only at the at the Penn Relays or the Drake Relays, basically, for the collegians. Um, and now there's the new World Relays, which are super cool. The best in the world are running relay races at one specific event um, in different parts of the world, which has been a recent thing and a really cool thing to see too so the dmr is not just completely and utterly obscure um and if you get a chance to watch a few of those races you should i want to say that the men's world record i don't think they have it still but they had it for a long time but the university of texas's men had the world record the great leo manzano on anchor for that um and i i was coaching the women at the time um that that world record was broken i was there on the on the track that day and watched what uh, just an amazing race run by those texas guys so people from central texas we do have a deep connection to this to the dmr and in this case they ran a 1040 as i said they broke the record by two seconds on the back of jenny simpson who closed it out in 427 for the 1600 to get that record underneath they kind of came through on pace when she got the baton and then she she sealed the deal with with some change <laughs> now if you look at the splits coburn and mclaughlin probably ran relatively I don't want to say slow, but more pedestrian splits versus Martinez and Simpson who closed it out pretty hard. How do you how do you stack up their performances across the group? Of course, it's a world record. So <laughs> when you say slow, you got to put it in quotation marks as relative. But yeah, I think there's a, probably 10 or 12 women at the collegiate level that right now could run a 318. Um, that doesn't mean that Coburn's effort wasn't solid. Um, it just means that her training is not geared towards that at this point in time. She's never been known to be the wheeliest or the speediest of merchants, although over the last few years, um, she has gotten much, much better in that regard. But uh, they did have sort of a weak front end in terms of her and her and um, Sydney. Sydney split a 52, which there again, there's probably 
eight to 10 women at the collegiate level to say nothing of the world level who could split 50 to 51, which would have been valuable time. And, and it's incredibly important in the DMR to think about this. We look at people's splits, but it's more important where the baton is and the way the baton moves through the exchange zones. Um, I didn't get to watch the race, so I'm not sure how smoothly it moved, but it could easily be that Brenda, who ran, Brenda Martinez ran a 201, which is blistering fast for this time of the year indoors. It's That was probably, in my opinion, maybe even at least as good as, as um, Jenny's effort, but maybe even better than Jenny's effort, depending on how you look at, at it. Um, but... You know that they it may have been that Brenda stole a little from Sydney, um, and that maybe she had run Sydney had run faster basically. But again, if I had to stack them up, I'd say uh, Jenny and Brenda definitely produced the goods. Sydney did a solid, and uh, and 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 Coburn did solid. But there's definitely room for that world record being broken again relatively quickly, maybe even by the same by the same quartet. So, in this race, you also have kind of digging into. To some of the personalities a little bit. We had Emma Coburn. I don't. I don't think many people know this, but it kind of went under the radar screen a month ago or so. She ended up announcing that she was changing coaches from her longtime collegiate coach Mark Wetmore to being coached by her now fiance Joe Broussard, and who's never coached an elite level athlete. And so that's sort of an interesting switch for a bronze medalist in the Olympic, American record holder for the steeple to switch to an inexperienced coach like that away from Wetmore who's had a long history of, of of solid performances with from his athletes. So what do you make of that switch for Coburn? Well I can't imagine it's anything too dramatic. I mean Jenny left you know Mark Wetmore a number of years ago and what seemed like it was a bit more of a melodramatic scenario um, although they are tight-lipped up there in, in Boulder everybody uh, has sort of there's sort of a rule about not talking out out of out of turn so who knows if it was dramatic or not but regardless it seems that uh, I can't see how anyone would trade out Mark Wetmore as a coach under any circumstances much less to a recent college graduate Albeit Bro Broussard, Joe Broussard is a, was a very good runner and, again, was coached by Coach Wetmore. So you can't imagine that they're going to be doing things incredibly different. Um, but I just can't see how that trade-out makes sense. However, that is one thing that's important to think about, and this is just something that sort of bounced through my head when I heard about it. I was like, why in the world would Emma do that? Um, She's known for her consistency. She's known for the, the, the duo of Heather and Heather Burroughs is also one of the coaches of that group, coaches both collegiately at, at uh, Colorado with Mark Wetmore, as well as the post-collegiate athletes there. Um, and so they're known for a pretty steady, even approach. And Coburn has definitely got a steady, even approach to the way she does things. So then I kind of thought about it a little bit. I thought, well, maybe it's just something as simple as the timing of the day that they want to train and you know they're collegiate coaches they've got to do their job first which is to help those collegiate athletes um and they do a great job of that so it may be that emma wanted to run at 10 in the app 10 in the morning and didn't want to wait till two in the afternoon or have to get up earlier than they wanted to and and so there are other things like that where it's not some kind of drama out playing out on the track in in, in emotional terms and it's much more a, a matter of hey i know i can do something relatively consistent I've been with this coach for exceedingly long time. My husband is now 
has the same, been in through the same system, understands the same things. And I did read an interview where she mentioned that she had felt like she needed to do more long runs and maybe some more hard tempos and longer tempos, which knowing what I know about Mark's system, it seems like that's probably <laughs> ongoing in that program. Right. But maybe they had shifted so much to try to get her wheelie, which she has, I mean, I, I think her 1500 over the last two to three years has come down immensely. So... Who knows? There's a lot of different reasons why people could switch. I don't see it necessarily playing out exactly the way they want to. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when the skin is in the game in Europe um, at, the, at, the, at the U.S. championships and then as they go into Europe. And this pressure and the stress comes down on both Emma and Joe in terms of results you know, and, and not just the theoretics of training. Those things change. Coaches who have been at it for a long time, like Mark, they're a steady, even hand there. Um, we'll see how well it plays out for them. So we will see. She did mention in her post-EMR interview that she was doing more long long runs and longer tempos than before, and that was really all the training she had done going into this race. So she hadn't done a lot of speed work. So pretty impressive, her split. 66s under that say, scenario are very, yes. So we will see, but we're rooting for Emma. She's certainly one of the darlings of American distance running and someone to root for because we believe that she's clean, at least I do. And I do too. And, and one of those who's competing and representing us well at the world level. All right, so that's our quick uh, start. But then we've got some other events to talk about, including a couple weekends or a couple weeks ago now, Bekele went for the world record of the marathon in Dubai. He stumbled at the start, fell, scraped his elbow, and then ultimately ended up dropping out just after halfway. Maybe 61.30 through the halfway will do that to you. <laughs> he, he, well, the group went 61.30. I think by that point he was, he was about 75 seconds behind. He started falling off about the 5K point. And, but the, place, the pace was blistering hot. It was also a little bit of a warm day in Dubai. I think they said it was mid-60s. They went through 10K in 28.57. <sighs> Ultimately, pretty much everybody blew up. Uh, Bukele DNF'd. And then Tamarat Tola, who won the bronze in the 10K at, in Rio, he ended up holding on to pretty well to run a 204 at low, which on a warm day in Dubai is a pretty good result. But Bikili DNF'd, he signed up for London. What do we make of this attempt? There's some conspiracy theories, of course, that either he was tripped purposefully at the start or maybe he tripped himself because he you know, was bailing on the, the effort and wanted an excuse. What do you make of it? I don't know. You know, I think that it probably has a whole lot more to do with the fact of how fast they went through that first 5K and 10K. Um, you know, tripping at the starting line... Um, and anything other than a marathon probably isn't that big a deal. But in a marathon, if you trip at the starting line, go down, you're going to have a whole bunch of, you know, the endorphins press through you. You freak out. Your 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 elbows, I mean, your shoulders go up to your ears, and you get really rigged up. And then the race goes through. I forget what they went through the 5K in, but it was something ridiculously fast. It's sub-14, it's like 14.20 or something ridiculous like that. So, you know, it it, it all of that together I could see – putting a big kibosh on a world record attempt. Um, and then, you know, a lot of these things, these athletes, um, what they're trying to do is have a command performance on one given day. But if it doesn't work out that day, then wasting that time and effort in, a, in, a, in something that's not going to get them what they want. I don't have a problem with them dropping out in those scenarios. I don't, I don't have any, I won't look at 
Bekele uh, at the starting line of his next race and say he's going to get his butt kicked. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think it may have been too many bad things happening at the early part of a race and then just deciding to, to save it for another day. So I wouldn't read too, too much into it. Um, I think that, of course, we just gained a huge benefit for that two-race cycle of Boston and London back-to-back and getting to watch the best marathoners in the world with him lining up on that starting line. It certainly changes the way that race is going to be run and the way that that race is going to be play out. So where does Bikili fit in the pantheon of distance runners. He's the current world record holder for the 5,000 indoor and outdoor. He's the 10,000 meter world record holder. He's run 203.03 for the marathon in Berlin last year, which is darn near the world record for the marathon. And he'll, as he said, he wants to attempt to get the world record for the marathon. So where does he stand in the greatest of all time discussions? Number one. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the problem is, is that he has, well, I, I think he's number one, or at least he and one other person are fighting for number one. Um, you can guess who I'm thinking about. Are you talking about Haile Jebrselassie? No, I mean, no. Who won the Olympic gold medal this year in well, the marathon? Uh, but Kipchoge, I mean, for the marathon, is unquestionably the greatest marathoner of all time. But I think I'm talking all-around distance runner. Well, I think that Kipchoge is going to needs to By be... By the end. I think he really? needs to be an, in the one, two, or three position in that discussion. If you look back at his career, which many people don't look all the way back because he didn't win world titles in the 5K and the 10K or Olympic titles in the 5K and 10K, but he was in the hunt on many of those races right in there getting beaten by by Bekele. So if, if he's a better marathoner and... And is more consistent in marathoning, run faster times, and won at the highest level, and Bekele can't. Do we discount, do we then give Bekele more credit for the 5K, 10K titles that he won? I don't know. But I think that at this point in time in my mind, Bekele has superseded Gabriel Selassie. I think that his he is... Um, Gabriel Selassie waited too long to move to the marathon, and he did not have the kind of success. And if Bekele can have one more high-level marathon or two more high-level marathons that are put him in the hunt for the world record, if he wins the world record, it's over. <laughs> if he gets the world record, it's over. But I do think Kipchoge, um, if he continues to win big-time races, he will. There, there's a chance in a scenario where... So I would say Bekele's number one, Kipchoge number two, Gabriel Selassie number three, with 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 Kipchoge having a chance to really turn the tide if he can win another Olympic gold medal in four years, if he can get the world record and hold the world record and have consistently great performances. Of course, if he breaks two hours, then, you know, shut the, shut it down. (laughs) But uh, he's definitely the, he's definitely the greatest of all time. But, you know, and it's super interesting when you think that at, at the highest level, you know, when we talk about the greatest of all time, we we fail to bring one important person into the mix here, and that's Emil Zadopek. And we forget that he did the things, he did something that no one else has ever done. Um, he won the Olympic gold medal in the five and in the 10 and in the in marathon, marathon in the same Olympiad. <laughs> it, you know, and, and then and then Lassevira needs to be put in the conversation as well because he won the 5K and the 10K in two Olympiads back-to-back and then got fifth at the Olympic Games in the marathon. So 
in the end, you look at that and say, I mean, why are we, why, why is the ascendancy so guaranteed? <laughs> Not that I'm trying to play it off to the old school, new school game, but if we did, I would love for those statisticians out there who do all these comparative results, maybe they can compare the level of where they were at. But in, in some sense, I think Zadapek um, doesn't get the credit that he deserves for the wins that he had. Well, if you're going to start bringing those guys into the mix, then you have to bring Mo Farah into the mix as well. Because he also won the 5K and 10K and back-to-back Olympics. Correct. And he hasn't, he, he hasn't really moved up to the marathon yet, so we don't know where where he will stand there, but he has to be in the mix too. For sure. There's a lot of guys in the mix. Um, <laughs> and, and we're talking about the men, you know what I mean? There's a lot of guys in right. the mix. And so I think that uh, what an amazing era to be a, a track and field fan and a distance running fan, in my opinion. It's just it's 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 awesome because... We're going to continue to see greater and greater results. Again, we can go back to our, our conversation about what's happening with drugs and what's happening. Are people cheating? Um, you know, again, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put my head in the sand and be a great fan and say <laughs> they're clean till they get busted because I don't know what else to do, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, if we're, if, we're, if we're talking about that, then we have to, I think, look at Tola's result finishing in low 204s in Dubai in those temperatures and conditions, ultimately running by himself to the finish. I think you have to look at that and maybe flag it as one that might be questionable. <laughs> but I my, my thing on Dubai is that it seemed like it was a lot of hype. It seemed like McKeeley's team, for whatever reason, wanted to hype it up. And maybe Dubai was paying him a good chunk of change to get attention on that race. And so they were pushing the hype a little bit. But it seemed like the hype was just hype and ultimately he knew that if he probably wasn't going to break it there running solo uh to the effort at those at those paces but that really london was where he was targeting so you know regardless of the fall at the beginning my sense was that he was probably going to dnf dubai anyway and it was just a good long hard training effort to see how those paces felt and then he would save it for london but who knows? Well, he found out how they felt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tough. <laughs> and we'll see. London will be a great show because there will be lots of uh, lots of folks, fast folks in that field. So that's second topic. Third, I wanted to cover off on, which we learned about this weekend. And, and I had a little exchange with this athlete on Twitter. Kay Grace has switched from Wazelle to Nike, which I think is a big, a big move because... Historically, Wazell has gone to bat with with Nike on some of the things in the sport with governance and drugs and things like that. So that's an interesting switch. And so I I saw a picture that Kate tweeted with her racing in a Nike kit this past weekend. And I sort of asked the question, say it ain't so. Uh, And she wrote back and she said, this is not an alternative fact. It is (laughs) (laughs) it's a real the real truth. And so I tweeted back and said, well, hopefully you could bring some light to the dark side. And, <laughs> and she tweeted back with a, a, a sun emoji. So we had a fun exchange on that. But it's an interesting move because traditionally Nike gets a bad rap and, and Wazel sort of seen as the, the light while Nike's the dark side. So what's your take on that, that move? Obviously, money had to have something to do with it. I think it's the principal thing. Um you know that she still she didn't change her training group she didn't change her coach all those things remain the same um, and so this is much more probably along the lines of how long of a career can I have and in the window of time that I have to have this career how can I 
how can I make up for the fact that, I mean, Kate Grace is a super smart girl. She went to Yale. She could be making probably six figures in her chosen field wherever, and she was probably not getting anywhere close to six figures in her deal with Wazell. And so Nike is probably in a position, given what she did this year, she needed to cash in on the, on the results. And un- unfortunately, at this point, the only company that's really putting big money into track and field athletes in the middle distances in the in the middle distances um, is Nike. And so, at the end of the day, I don't begrudge her her choice. Um, once you play with that, once you start, you know, playing in the fields with the devil, you're gonna get burned. So she needs to be ready for the same thing that's happened to many other 800 meter runners that shift switched from one loyal um, sort of grassroots sponsor to Nike and then when Nike is done with you they're done with you and then you don't have the same option to move back to your loyal grassroots um, sponsorship that you had because you've burned that bridge but in Kate's scenario I'm sure she's done the cost-benefit analysis I'm sure she's determined that this is the best move for her and um, frankly I don't begrudge her because she needs to put money in the bank for her future yeah and she was U.S. champ Made it to the Olympic final, eighth in the final, our best American result there for the 800. So she had, a, and, and that was after a couple of years of rebuilding from injury. So she she had a big year and you can't blame her for cashing in. Hopefully she was able to negotiate a favorable contract without some of the reduction clauses that Nike's famous for. And so maybe she's helping turn the tide a little bit on athletes contract rights a little bit in this negotiation. We will never know. But Kate's one to root for, for sure. If you don't know that name, look her up. USA 800 meter runner. She's definitely one to watch for. And I think her future is very bright. You know, this year, hopefully, was only the tip of the iceberg for what's possible for her. Yeah, I hope so, too. I mean, the women's, I mean, we are the best in the world, among the best in the world, when you look at the depth in terms of the 800, um, both on the men and the women's side. Of course, it's super disappointing on the women's side when you've got you know, we talk about drugs. We just did talk about drugs, but we don't really talk about um, the the case of Castro Semenya and uh, the other the other Kenyan girl. I forget her name. Um, and you know, they've they're gonna test in almost every regard as being men. And these women are getting on the starting line with incredibly talented freshmen and college men in in essence. Um, and so they are. It, if we didn't have those two running, and I'm not going to get into the argument about whether they, sh- the, these two other athletes, should be running in that race, um, but just suffice it to say that if they weren't in the race, Kate Grace would be in the hunt for an Olympic medal beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, you opened a can of worms there with that one. Yeah, we'll save that for another discussion. <laughs> That's for another one. <laughs> uh, okay, last current event to talk about because this one could affect the middle distance ranks for the U.S. as well. Well, really up to the marathon ranks. Uh, so Ka- Sally Kipiego, former Texas Tech collegiate runner who has run for Kenya and was a Kenyan citizen just recently was nationalized to be, to be a U.S. citizen. She has yet to officially declare that she's going to compete for the U.S. on the world stage, but she finished second in New York this past fall at the marathon distance. She's been competitive at the 5K and 10K distances at the Olympic level and the world champ level. So she's going to mix things up with the best Americans in those events. What do you think of Sally's switch? I think, uh, you know, she's been living in the United States um, exclusively since she basically got to Texas Tech many years ago. So we're talking about eight, maybe even 10 years now of being 
um, in the United States and has worked towards her natural her, her citizenship just as any other person would um, and gone about it just like any other person would. And so begrudging her being an American citizen and getting on the starting line of races um, is 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 akin to getting grumpy at uh, anybody doing any other job in the United States who might be taking jobs from Americans. So, you know, I'm not going to get into that whole argument. Again, here I am opening cans of worms about who should be American, who shouldn't, who, sh- who we should let in the country, who we shouldn't let in the country, given the circumstances, you know, this this past weekend. But ultimately, she's earned the right to represent the United States. Um, and I and I think she should. Um, anybody that knows Sally, they know she's one of the kindest um, people on the face of the planet. Um, they also know that she's one of the hardest workers and the most consistent race res- gets the most consistent race results. And uh, if I look at anybody on the starting line that I'm proud of to represent the Stars and Stripes at the 2020 Olympic Games, if Sally's in that position, she'll be getting a little old and long in the tooth at that point. But if she represents our country, I'll be very proud to have her do that, given who I know she is as a person. Well, I hope she competes for the U.S. for those reasons, but also because it'll be interesting for her to spark up a little bit of a rivalry with our best 5K, 10K, and up-and-coming marathon competitor, which is Molly Huddle, who finished third in New York, so they were second and third there and both have competed at the world level for the 5k and 10k so those two head to head will awesome. be will be fun to watch i think it'll be awesome at the next u.s champs which is coming up here in a couple of months so you know i think that it would be interesting to see if she represents the u.s um or if she runs at our u.s or u.s championships um this this june or july um, but it will be awesome to see Molly have someone go toe to toe with her, which she really hasn't had um, in a in a bit of time. So she's had people run close to her. No no disrespect out right. there to others, but I don't think anybody would question who the best five k and up runner in the United States is at this juncture. Right. I think I remember when she won at the trials this past summer. Somebody. Somebody tweeted, there's death, taxes, and Molly Huddle because <laughs> she's essentially won every U.S. championship she's competed in in a long time, both on the track and on the roads as well. So with that, we're going to wrap up our current events. That's longer than normal. Like we've said before, we're going to make you track fans whether you like it or not. <laughs> but that's a little hodgepodge of some recent events, and it's only winter time. We're just getting started on the indoor season, so I can't wait till we get to talk once the actual you know real races start as we get into indoor season and outdoor but it's always fun for us so please look up some of those athletes we mentioned be a fan yeah please do all right now we're going to switch gears to our main topic as i said we're going to do a little bit of a series going through the key tenets that we topic talked about in episode one as we talked about there our training methodology is based on Arthur Lydiard's philosophy at least it's evolved from that so we covered five tenets in that first episode on our core training philosophy as we've talked about before Steve and I are both coaches here at Rogue Running and so we wanted to drill into in a series form each of those tenets and give you a little bit more details as well as practical application the first one we're going to talk about is the point about miles matter we've talked we talked in that first episode a little bit about why miles matter but I wanted to get a little more depth there, Steve. Let's talk about why. What's Why is it so important to build your mileage to be a better runner? Because 90% of the athletes that I deal with on a day-to-day basis are aerobic midgets, period. It's They're not at the point where they've had year after year after year after year of development 
um, unless they were in the case, like in your case, where they were a soccer player in their youth, which in which case they have gotten a good bit of mileage in and they do have some aerobic development. But aerobic development takes exceedingly long to develop. It takes a long period of time of steady, consistent running week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out in order to see gains. And so when we look at improving the adult runner and especially the adult marathoner, but this is a case in all regards. As I told someone very recently, when I coached at the post-collegiate level, my 800-meter runners ran almost the same weekly mileage as my, as my um, 10K runners and even my marathoners. So aerobic development at whatever your distance is crucial. Um, one of my mentors, um, I got an opportunity to train with him for a number of years, and then I've also been able to bounce lots of ideas off of him at almost every U.S. championships I go to. This gentleman's name is Joe Hill. If you don't know who Joe Hill is, you should do a little research on him. Um, he is uh, Dina Castor's former coach. I think he may, I don't know if he's still, I don't think they're still working together, but she, uh, he was responsible for some of the best marathoning that has ever happened in the United States at, at the highest level. Um, and his view was all distance runners needed to run 100 miles a week. And, and he felt that was true 1,500 meters on up. But he said especially so for the marathoner. Now, 100 miles a week is way more than our average everyday person can probably manage and handle. But the point should be taken that in his view, the most important thing that they could possibly do was find their bodies and get their bodies into a zone in which they could maximize their aerobic development. How much oxygen how much better can they get at getting oxygen to go work to the go to the working muscles that are necessary? You get oxygenation happening at very easy run pace. You're also having mitochondrial buildup at easy run pace. The faster you run, the harder it is to build your mitochondria because they have to have a sort of safe space to be developed. So, you know, physiologically, it's incredibly important in order to develop this higher mileage or as many miles as you can manage in your in your life. Um, but the reason for that is because we come from a place, many of us come from a place where we are not developed appropriately aerobically. Yeah. When I talk about this with athletes, I kind of talk about it in two ways. There's the physiolo- physiology of it, the sort of scientific reasons, which are what you described, which is that you're literally, as you build your mileage, you're trying to change your body's construction, how it's formed from the inside out which means at the cellular level, you're adding mitochondria to your cell, to your cells. You're adding blood vessels, capillaries to your muscles so they can get more oxygen to them. You are adding red blood cells so that your blood can actually carry more oxygen. You're also improving the efficiency with which oxygen, can, oxygen can move from your lungs into your blood. So you're literally changing how your body is constructed from the inside out. And as you say, that process takes time. And you can't do it at faster paces. So if you run faster, you are benefiting when you run faster. But those are different physiological checkboxes that are getting checked off. And it means if you're checking those physiological boxes off, you are not checking off the aerobic development ones that you just so eloquently described. You should get you to describe that every time because when I say it, it always sounds like choppy, but you just explained it very, very well. Those of you who don't, who want to know what happens physiologically, just re-scroll back and listen to what Chris just said. It's essential and important to understanding why it, why we have to run easy and why we need to focus on our base and get our miles up now some people aren't scientists or don't like the physiological answer so especially for men i'll give them the metaphorical concept too which is that you described it as aerobic midgets or aerobic babies the way i can also describe it metaphorically is that 
everyone starts out with a little lawnmower engine. You know, their aerobic system is like a lawnmower. You know, it can kind of rev up high, but you're not getting much power out of it. And as you build your aerobic system, you're going from a lawnmower engine to a four-cylinder, to a six-cylinder, to an eight-cylinder, to a, you know, 10 or 12-cylinder engine. So you're literally building the size of your engine. You're adding pistons to the system so that you can get more output. And when people, when people debate me or ask me, well, shouldn't I be running faster? I say, well, do you want a big engine, you know, an eight-cylinder, eight 10-cylinder engine? Or do you want a really revved-up lawnmower engine? Because when you run fast prematurely and haven't built that aerobic base, then that's what you're getting. You're just fine-tuning. You're revving up your lawnmower engine, and that's not going to get you very far. But if you have a less fine-tuned 8- or 10-cylinder engine, you're going to be able to crank no matter what. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about building the size of your engine so that when it comes time to fine-tune it, you have a big engine that's worth fine-tuning. And strength is speed in every category. I like to ask people, some people, times people will say to me, I need to do more speed work so I can get faster. And what I ask them is, how fast do you think you can run for 400 meters? If you just ran one lap around the track, you know, somebody might say to me, um, I, if they're a, if they're like a, a eight to 10 minute miler, they might say, I think I might be able to run 90 seconds for 400 meters. And I said, so do you think you could go 90 seconds, four straight times and run a six minute mile? And they say, absolutely not. I can't. Well, then the problem isn't how fast you are because you can run 60, you can run a 90 second, 400 meter run, but you don't have the strength enough to stretch that into 800 meters at a, at three minutes and six and a 1600 meter or a mile at, at, at six minutes because you, it's a strength question, not a speed question. Um, and that higher revved up, that, that, that higher revved up low engine, low, low power engine will only burn up after a very short period of time. And you need to have that much bigger engine, as Chris described. Uh, we just talked about Emma Coburn's running three 68 second quarters and her push to run the 1200 meters at that DMR. Um, and we talked about her being sort of the weak link, but we probably know also that she's incredibly got a V12 in her system <laughs> yeah. and working on more to try to even expand that and so she can still wheel around f as fast as almost any fast collegian can because she has the strength necessary to do that the other thing i tell people on this topic because it is counterintuitive a lot of people think i have to run fast to be fast and what we're saying is no you need to balance long easy mileage in order to ultimately run fast so you have to kind of go slow and build your base so that you can run fast later that's a counterintuitive principle Unless you think about it maybe in a different context. Most people, when they think about weightlifting, realize that it's important if you're going to improve your max bench press that you go and you do lower weights, higher reps most of the time. And then periodically you go in and then you'll test your max and you'll see that it's improved. But most of the time you're doing higher reps, higher volume of lower weight in order to improve your overall strength. And the same thing is true in running. You're doing higher volume lower speeds so that when you do need to go fast you can yeah and this brings up another another idea um that coach Hill used to preach all the time um and it was foundational to his system you know he did a system he he coached in a system that i i frankly use myself which i call a, a multi-pace system which i kind of say it's doing everything all the time 
but it came but in order to do all the that everything all the time model you have to have a great base and he used to say all the time you can't get fast and strong at the same time you have to be focused on one or the other in these key areas of development early on in your programming so um, if you get into a group like mine, which is a Team Rogue program where we're doing 5K pace work, 10K pace work, um, half marathon pace work, and marathon pace work, all in the context of a two to three window, realize that many of the people in my group have already developed and got themselves to a mileage point where it's in a sweet spot for them, as I like to call it, and they're maximizing their mileage while they're also adding the quality. Um, until they get to that point, we do different things for them. We make them do less mileage. Um, with the faster speed or we make them run a few groups back in the quality days so they can handle the long run. So it's, it's really important to balance that and know that you can't get strong and fast simultaneously. So once we've established sort of the why, then the question becomes, how do you do it? How do you build safely from whatever your starting point now might be? As we go into this piece of the discussion, I wanted to bring up your history in starting Rogue, which is Basically, you wanted to bring elite athlete training principles to the everyday runner, recognizing that the everyday runner could handle the same concepts and the same physiological impulses or impetuses, but might just do it at different paces. And when you started Rogue, you, you started something early on in Rogue called the Performance Project, where you're really testing the limits of people's volume capacities. <laughs> and so talk about that and what you learned, and then let's go into... How do you know how to build and how quickly to build and, and where you should target your mileage? Sure. So um, when we started Rogue, we, we created basically a two-tiered approach. One was getting anybody or everybody ready for a marathon or below. And those were really basically beginner-level programs that had some of the concepts of elite-level training in them um, in terms of making sure they were having fun on their quality day and making sure that they did some kind of very paced work on their long run. But... The other, the other angle that I went down was what I called the performance project. And basically, those were my guinea pigs. And I literally, people who were in that group, and maybe some of our listeners were in that group for a window, um, I threw pretty much anything at them to see if it would stick. I tried to get their volume up to high levels. I tried to give them two quality workouts in a week on top of a long run. And honestly, some people improved incredibly well and did so in a relatively short period of time. Most of those folks were people who had been doing long, steady, consistent running without any speed work at all. And me adding you know, six to eight weeks of high quality, high intensity speed work, they quickly developed. Um, whether they could sustain that over the long term became to be a problem. And so over the years, I began to realize that if I did not, that many of the athletes that I was coaching in the performance project did not have the kind of base necessary, which was the first time I began to realize that the things I was implementing for the post-collegiate or the elite level athlete was was taking it for granted that these athletes had run in junior high and high school and that they were at a, at a much higher aerobic volume over a global period of time, over a longer period of time. And so when we threw those hard quality workouts at those athletes, they responded early, but then they had a hard time sustaining it over time. So the next project we did after we, we shifted, we actually shifted 
pretty about a year in or a year and a half in after I'd gotten pretty wrung those you know wrung that uh, towel out about as much as I could. And you broke some people. Along I broke the way. a few people <laughs> along the way. There's no doubt about that. But many of those people still remember those days fondly. Um, you know, as, as we said before, when you're in a foxhole, you, you you always remember the people you fought with. Um, yeah. But then we switched completely, and I went with a I did a a, a basic lit, almost about a six to eight month Lydiard phase where I basically followed Lydiard to the T. Um, and that was when I began to really realize that we needed to get, I knew we needed to get volume. And so I set people's goals. I had, we had a goal for as many people as we could get to run a hundred mile weeks. And we had a few people who did it for a couple of weeks, but they built up slowly, but gradually and other people who held on to that mileage for a considerable period of time. Um, and then we slowly, but surely started adding more of the quality in, but the focus was always on that aerobic development piece rather than the speed and, and turnover piece. Um, I think now that what we found then, though, that people really started to atrophy from that much high mileage with very little sensory positive experience of doing turnover work and doing 200s and doing 400s and doing, um, you know, shorter tempo runs. They just got bored of running long, steady runs consistently. So um, I think what we've developed now with our Dawn Patrol group and with all of our Team Road group is something that's akin to a mesh of those two worlds, which is a little bit of a lot of multi-paced work, doing a lot of everything all the time, but from the context of making sure that each athlete has a really robust and ongoing aerobic development piece to what they're doing. So I always say to my athletes, you can only run as many miles as you can recover from. So everybody has... Now you mentioned 100 mile weeks maybe is optimal, but that's sort of for the elite athlete who's doing nothing else that can nap and sleep nine or 10 hours a night and has all the ability to get nutrition and do all the recovery elements they need to do without constraint. And so the everyday runner who has children and a job and a life and a bunch of things to balance may not be able to get there, but they could they can get their mileage to some point. But how should someone, let's say you have a, an individual who's maybe running 20 to 30 miles a week today that wants to bump their mileage, how should they think about their target mileage and then how should they think about getting there over time? Well, first of all, I think what's important is to take their background, as you, as you alluded to. We need to know what they were able to hold. So if you brought to me somebody who wanted to run 20 miles a week, who was already running 20 miles a week but was looking to get improvement, um, and number one, I would look at their age. I think this age is one of the key components to this piece of the puzzle. If you're over the age of 50 years old, a, a plan might be manufactured that's a little bit differently for a little bit different for you. Not that we would give you short shrift on the things that we would give you. We would just need to be a little bit more careful by the way that you got recovered from those things. But a 20 mile per week person who wanted to say let's build to 40 miles per week, which is basically a threshold for people who I coach at, at the level that I coach. Um, my recommendation is for them to uh, build their mileage up somewhere in the vicinity about five miles a week. Um, and then, so a person that came to me that had 20-mile background, I would say 40 miles a week was probably a bit much for them to get to in a four- to six-week period of time. But that maybe I would give them a six- to eight-month window in order to get up to that 40 miles a week. And what I would do is run 25 miles a week for a couple of weeks and then maybe 30 miles a week for a couple of weeks and then maybe 35 miles a week for a couple of weeks, always being willing to drop back to the previous number. Let's say if you were at 35 and you start to feel really tired and a little bit worn down, and not getting 
appropriately recovered, then slip back to another 30 mile week for another week or two weeks and then develop and then bump back up again to 35. Now, this is taking into consideration that you're not doing high intensity quality work at the same time. If you are doing high intense quality work at the same time, then my suggestion to that person would be to not do that to work only on developing their aer- themselves aerobically. There might be some key workouts that they occasionally did um, to help them get to the point where they weren't just staying in one one basic slow plodding rhythm all the time. Um, I might give a person in that regard a workout every two to three weeks that would give them a little bit of challenge and give them some have give, give them something to look forward to. Um, but they need to focus primarily on just doing that set distance consistently. Of course, always the summer is a great time to implement these kinds of plans by not picking a race that you have in a window, using the summer to get yourself built up in mileage because your body's going to have all the stresses that can possibly get thrown at it during a summer of training, and you'll be able to listen to those things. It's also important during that window, though, to be doing at least once a week and sometimes two times a week what we call strides. And that's doing some faster paced work that is um, sub-maximal, so not, at the, not all out, not sprinting, not grinding your face, tightening your face and making all your muscles tense, but more along the lines of somewhere about 85 to 90% of full max effort for only about 6 to 7 to 10 seconds. You can build those in the context of your run while you're running. If you want to get them done then, make sure that you take at least you know, 5 to 10 minutes between each one of those strides as you're doing it. But more optimally, what you would do is finish your your uh, four to five to six mile run that you might finish and then um, give yourself some time, get some water, get your air, get some breath, take a little bit of a rest and then do a stride of about six to eight to 10 seconds. Or if you're on a track, maybe a hundred meters long and then stop and walk back to the place that you started. This is a very important thing about doing strides. Many times people do strides as if they're interval work. They are not interval work. We are not trying to develop you aerobically or any of your energy systems. We are purely and simply allowing your neuromuscular, your body, your neuromuscular recruitment phases to be able to handle a more ballistic and harder push-off phase. Um, And so we want those tendons and ligaments and muscles to get used to running at a decent clip, but you don't want to do it for any more than 10 seconds, and you want to make sure you take optimal and full recovery between each one of those strides. So to repeat, someone who wanted to build their mileage, don't ever build up more than five miles in any given week. Be willing to repeat any week necessary during that time frame, and do not forget to do your strides during this entire phase, or you will find later on that you, while you may have gotten stronger, you might have a harder time handling any up-tempo work that you might need to do later. All good points. A couple of things I would add. One is that you should think about your mileage journey over the period of many years. You know, so if somebody's starting out at 20 to 30 and you want to build to maybe 50 to 60, think about that journey over the course of several years. So maybe one summer you get to 35, next summer you get to 50, and then you get to 60 three years out. So map it out over the course of years. Not that you need to be rigid in that journey, but at least you have some sort of plan you can consult with a coach on how can I reasonably build my mileage over the course of many years, recognizing that it requires patience if you're going to do this appropriately, and also understanding that you may modify within that depending on how your body responds. You may not get to 35 that first summer. You may only get to 30. You may not get to 50 the next summer. You may only get to 45, but you're willing to listen to your body and be flexible with that. The other thing I would say as you're building mileage within a given training block is I usually tell my athletes, focus on building days first, 
then build, build miles on those days. So if you're running three times a week, build the five or six first of similarly distance runs. And then once you get to that point, you're comfortable with those days, then start to build the mileage on those days, perhaps starting with your longer run on the weekend and maybe one other medium long run during the week so that you're building those days while keeping your other days for recovery days. And of course, you know, a coach can help you do that. So consult with somebody who's maybe been through this before or a training partner or something like that. So build days first, then mileage. As it relates to strides, I would add that this is something, whether you're building mileage or not, that you should be doing once a week, every week, no matter what, because it's a speed development tool that will serve you well, regardless of the phases. And if you do them right, they're not that taxing on the body. As, as Steve said, you know, you're only spending five or six seconds in that 85 to 90% speed zone so that it's not that stressful, but it helps you become not only more efficient, but helps you build speed over time. And it's something you should be doing no matter what you're doing year round every week, once a week, build it in to one of those runs. It really helps resilience as well. If I had to say there were only two things that any athlete could do to, in terms of recovery or, or to stay healthy, it would be strides and foot drills. Um, of course, I recommend being in a weight room. I recommend a whole myriad of other things. I'm not saying don't do all these other wonderful things that you can do. But if you only had the time to do two things, I would say take an extra five minutes to do some strides and take an extra five minutes to do your foot drills. Those of you who are in Rogue, you know exactly what I'm saying. If you add those things consistently every week, week in, week out, you're going to be a very resilient athlete. You're going to be able to respond to just about any stresses that come your way through any training cycle and training protocol. So a couple of nuances off of this sort of build concept. One would be a case of what if somebody has already run 50 to 60 miles a week and they're trying to build back to that after maybe a break where they're taking four to five weeks off after maybe a major race or they're or they took four to five weeks of reduced mileage to recover from a certain effort what do you recommend as someone's building back to their to their already sort of comfortable mileage level super simple five miles a week just like i said in the in the bill that i would recommend to anybody five miles a week um willingness to repeat um, one week again where necessary. So if you got to, f if you're a 60 mile a week person and you got to 45 and everything got wonky and weird and your body wasn't responding quite appropriately, that you drop back to 40, 40 miles a week or you repeat 45, depending on where your what the case is and how bad you're feeling before you expand to go up to the 50 mile point. Um, during this time frame, I don't recommend that people follow build weeks or drop. I mean that they that they follow a drop down cycle. We'll talk about that in other other parts of what we discuss in our other pieces of training. But we talk about sometimes doing two weeks up, one week down, two weeks up, one week down. Those who are building do not need to worry about down weeks. They can just consistently be adding five miles a week um, and then repeating a week where necessary until they get back to their sweet spot. And that's the way I like to really think about what mileage really should be. Um, I coach a, a, a doctor who, I, you know, who has a very crazy schedule. 
Um, he can only get in about 40 to 45 miles a week maximum. And so for him, his sweet spot is 40 to 45 miles a week. That means when he takes his break and he comes back, he starts at 20 to 25 and he slowly gets himself back up to 45. Um, I have another athlete who uh, runs consistently between 90 and 100 miles a week. So his build is a much longer build. And it consists of weeks and weeks on end of getting himself back to where he needs to be. Now, one of the important things about those folks who are a little bit higher mileage when they take their drop from a when they take their break from a marathon, let's say that an individual ran the Houston Marathon recently, since we just went through that race, um, the guy, the individual who runs 100 miles a week, his his return to mileage week won't be 20 miles a week. It'll start at 50 or 55 miles because he's 50 to 50 miles, 50 to 55 miles over a course of. Um, a couple of weeks down is going to be very easy for him to jump right back into and he'll be much more comfortable with that whereas the doctor in my scenario at 45 miles a week his his he's probably dropping in at somewhere between 25 and 30 miles a week max you know one has a three to four week build back to their maximum mileage or their sweet spot and the other one has um a six or eight mile six or eight week jump to get back to their sweet spot but that that the key is is number one knowing what their sweet spot is and not changing that in that time frame and number two allowing their body the time to reacclimate to the load and the volume that's included. Now, what happens in a scenario where you might get sick for a week or miss a day because something popped up on your weekend schedule that you didn't anticipate? How do you think about those little blips in the context of a mileage build? I don't think there's any such thing as a makeup day. Um, you know, if you're on a weekend and you, you have a long run on a Saturday, but with because of family issues, you need to move it to Sunday. That's one thing altogether. That That's totally acceptable. But um, if you missed a weekend uh, to get your long run in and then Monday or Tuesday comes around and you think, oh, I should probably get my long run in. No, skip it. Um, and the reason you should skip it is because you had a really good reason for missing it in the first place. If you didn't have a reason for missing it, shame on you. And you shouldn't get to make it up because you didn't do the work necessary and make the commitments necessary to get it done in the time frame you had. And you're not you're not worthy of being the athlete that you want to that you think you want to be. But if you did have something come up, you got sick or you had a, a family emergency or or you just have too much in your day and you miss it, then just skip it. You don't have to drop the mileage again. You don't have to do anything different. You just have to move to the next week's workouts. Do not make it up. You're more likely to hurt yourself or put yourself in a really difficult place if you make it up. There's one caveat to this. That's if someone gets sick. If you get sick, and we've been seeing more and more of this lately, um, especially this time of year where folks get kicked for kicked on the ground for a week or two weeks or even three weeks, it's incredibly important that you take your time to get healthy. I like to say to people, you're either healthy or you're unhealthy or you're <laughs> injured or you're or you're not injured. There's no in-between. And so many people want to try to sit in some kind of in-between space. And if you're sick, um, then you're sick and you need to do all the things necessary to get yourself back to 100 percent before you start getting back into consistent hard running because building your long runs, getting into hard quality workouts is running your immune system down. And if you don't give yourself ample amount of time to get recuperated and recovered from that illness, then you're only going to make it worse for yourself and you'll have problems two, four, six weeks down the line of being completely run down and unable to do your quality work. So if someone does miss, let's say they're a 40 mile a week runner, 
and they miss a week and a half out of illness, then my suggestion will be to go back to somewhere around 30 to 35 miles a week and slowly again, five miles a week, five miles a week, build themselves back to where they need to be. And what they'll find is because they gave themselves the time and the space to get healthy, that they're able, when they finally feel 100%, they'll be able to, they'll be able to get right back at it just as they did before. I, re- I just recently went through an, an injury period while I was sick as well, so it's kind of a double whammy. And as I was working that out and building back, one of the things everybody would ask me, well, how far are you going to run today? And I would say, however far my body will let me. <laughs> because during that period of about three weeks as I was sort of figuring things out and getting things healthy again, all I could do was what my body let me do. And so every day I would show up, be prepared to do work regardless of how much I could run because I could always do strength and mobility you know in addition to the run but the run became whatever my body would let me do at easy paces and then gradually as it let me do more I did more as well so it's hard sometimes to listen to your body but that's what we're talking about in the case of injury or sickness the other thing I wanted to say on this whole topic of figuring out what your mileage should be I went through a period of about three years ago where I was still aspiring, you know, as, as we all do to get faster and, but struggling a little bit with that, maybe feeling a little bit like I'd hit a plateau or a peak. And what I figured out was that I had gotten to a place of running, trying to run between 75 and 80 miles a week and, and hold that average where given everything going on in my life with three kids and a business and athletes that I coach as well, that I wasn't recovering enough from that mileage. I was physically capable of running that mileage, but only in a scenario where I could devote more time to recovery. And at the time I couldn't. So I backed off my mileage between five and 10 miles per week for the next training cycle. And I found that I was able to kind of break through that plateau and ultimately got a marathon PR that season by actually reducing my mileage a little bit context the concepts were all the same but for me I discovered that I was pushing the limits too much as it related to mileage versus recovery in that trade-off and it actually benefited me by backing off a little bit yeah you found your sweet spot yeah exactly so sometimes you got to play with it is the point Um, another question for you during these builds other than strides what should they be thinking about in terms of paces efforts how, how should they, how fast should they be running? They need to keep it easy. Of course, easy is um, a super simple thing to say and probably a little bit more difficult to actually figure out what that is. Um, there's a couple ways to manage that. Number one, um, you can get really, really good at listening to your body and paying attention to the key markers that tell you. But really, or you can look at your heart rate. And we can talk a little bit about what heart rate training zones you might want to be in or where you might want to sit. Um, but probably the most effective way to determine whether or not you're running too hard or what's rather easy is listening to your breathing, is tracking your own breathing cycle. If you're able to carry on a conversation and, and be able to breathe comfortably while you carry that conversation on, then you're probably running in a very easy zone. Um, if you're running at a pace where as you have a conversation with someone, you start to go, I, I, them, the, the, then you're probably not, you're now in, into another energy space. You're into a space that's not easy. So, you know, really simply listen to your breathing, keep your breathing in a relaxed, easy, consistent way where you can take in a deep breath, fill your lungs completely, 
exhale, let your lungs almost completely um, get out of air and then bring it back in. If you can do that consistently while you're running, then you're most assuredly running easy. Um, it's another really important thing to indicate here that everybody's easy is different. Um, just like everybody's basic fitness level is different. Even though we put people in training groups and we have people training in groups based on their marathon goal times or what they've actually accomplished in a particular race to run at certain times, that level of effort for each person in that group is going to be variable and, and it's going to change. And so knowing the best way to know where you're at is to be able to listen to that your body's responses, um, whether that's through heart rate and paying attention to what that is from, you know, using a, 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 a machine on your arm that tells you what's going on attached to a, a heart rate monitor or by listening to your to your own breathing and what's going on with your own body. I'm a big believer in listening to your body more than listening to heart rate. Yep. Um, I think heart rate's a, a pretty consistent and significant limiter of people's ability. Plus, it's another outside variable, just like people's garments or their or their geekometers that sort of make them think about running science not necessarily scientific, but through a gadget rather than through the living, breathing organism that they are. And they need to listen to their own body first and use that other information, being pace per mile, heart rate, all those other things as, as sort of corroborating influencers but not key influencers. I mean, the other thing to remember on this point is that you really can't go too slow. Technically, you can. You can actually get to the point where you're not actually developing the aerobic, system, the aerobic system in the right way. But that would be like stroll in the park slow. But people won't do that. They won't. We're too, we're human, <laughs> no, very few people I work with will be in danger of always going too slow. So I, I don't, I, I hear you, but yeah, yeah, I think that your point is the one but that the needs to be made. Yeah, yes. and the point is too, when you think you're going slow enough, probably slow down a little bit more and then you're in the right spot. I learned this really crystal clear when my wife was pregnant for the first time and she was running through pregnancy and ended up running until about a week before our first child was born. And so I would do my easy runs with her to keep her company along her journey as she got a bigger belly and slowed down as a result. By the end, I think she'd call it more of a waddle than a run, but <laughs> I was doing all, all my easy days with her so that she had company and had some of my best races that season, even though I was going dramatically slower on my easy runs because I was able to not only build the aerobic system the right way, but also be prepared and recovered for the fast days better than I had been before because maybe I was pushing it a little bit too much on those days. So it became crystal clear for me that you really can't go too slow. And as long as you're able to have a conversation, as Steve said, then you're probably in the right spot. Now, one last thing I wanted to ask about, and then we'll close it out. There will be skeptics listening that say, well, what about this program from Runner's World, Run Last, Run Faster? And they might even say, I got faster by doing a program like that where I ran less and I ran and I was able to run faster by following a three or four day a week program, I think it is, where you're really focused on primarily on quality. What would you say to those skeptics that are like, ah, I can do it a different way? They'll do it. They can do that for a limited window of time. You must have, this is the basic fundamental thing of training. You have to build a big enough base. And if you're doing high intensity quality work, you are tearing away at your base, period. And so therefore that result will be a short lived, but, but very sharp peak. And you will probably get an incredibly great result. Um, but 
you will not be able to sustain that for much further than three, maybe six months. Um, some people who maybe had a very high, more of a high volume space prior to doing a sex, something like that, they might even get 12 to 18 months down the road with seeing improvement. But over the long haul, 18 months and further, which is the way at Rogue we like to think about everything. Everything happens in you know, a year and a half chunks because that's the time frame we should be thinking. Um, it's, it's a short-term return um, that will pay off quickly but will run out of money. There will be no more money in that bank. Um, and the person who's made a steady deposit on a consistent basis week in, week out, will begin to get more and more money in that account. And then they can they can take out bigger chunks at, at times when big command performances are necessary and needed. Show me a person who is doing that based that kind of a training protocol who's getting improvement after improvement after improvement and they don't exist it's 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 smoke and mirrors folks it's a way to sell magazines (laughs) it's not a way to train uh god bless the men and women at at uh runner's world but frankly they're they're uh, they're they're beholden to their shareholders than a lot more than they're beholden to your long-term improvement Another way we put that is no shortcuts, unfortunately. That's exactly right. Certainly not in the long term. So there you go, folks. So the question is, do you want a big bank account or a little bank account? Do you want a big 10-cellar engine or do you want a revved up lawnmower engine? That is the question you have to ask yourself. And if you want one of those bigger engines, then you got to put in the work. The miles matter, as we say. So The miles matter. And I just want to repeat it with one other thing that I think has uh, been brought to my attention recently is... Uh, you know, we're not the the sport of running and and, and the pastime of running is not um, rocket science and it's not you know brain surgery. This is this is what we do for fun. This is what we do for pleasure. Yes, we have to hurt and struggle and suffer, um, and we might have a particular disposi- predisposition to that. Many of the people that are listening to this podcast, but you've got to be healthy, happy, and strong throughout the whole process. If you don't, if you can't look back and say, I'm in a place where I'm healthy, happy, and strong, then any of these basic five principles that we're going to be discussing with you over this period of time are irrelevant because you're not going to have the ability to enjoy them. You're not going to have the ability to take them and make them even more of a part of your life. So keep that in mind, folks. You need to be healthy, happy, and strong within this process of building your mileage. Um, And as we talk about each of these other five zones, I'll be asking you to be healthy, happy, and strong in those spaces too. So there you have it. We'll wrap up this first episode in our new series on on physical training principles that will run in parallel with our mental training series as well. So look forward more from us on that. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. One announcement I did want to make because this is going out the same day we're, we're recording is that this Friday, February 3rd, we have our Austin Marathon Prep and Pump. I will be up there with James Dodds, one of our other coaches, talking about if you're running the Austin half marathon or full marathon, how do you think about pace strategy and how do you prepare mentally for a very difficult course? So come here at Rogue, 410 Pressler Street on Friday at 6 p.m. and we will get you prepared. If you're running the Austin Marathon and you're in Central Texas, you need to be here that day. It is, uh, it's an amazing experience. We have, uh, the beers are on happy hour prices and uh, the conversation will be phenomenal. I guarantee you will get a lot of information about it. And if you're running the Austin Marathon for the first time or you've never run the Austin Marathon, um, I highly recommend you come and listen. Be there and hopefully we'll see you then. With that, we'll wrap episode seven. As always, check us out on our website, roguerunning.com, or on Facebook, forward slash Rogue Running, or on Twitter and Instagram, at Rogue Running. 
until next time, we'll talk to you soon.